Greetings, and welcome to Talking Trek to You, where an expert and a noob boldly go through Star Trek episode by episode. My name is JG McQuarrie, and I'm here with my co-host, Kev Kozer. Say hi, Kev. Hi. How are you doing this week? Well, I have to either podcast here right today, right now, or we're going to lose a world war. So I'm doing my duty. <laughs> well, in that case, I think we better get on with podcasting and make sure that we're able to keep the future safe and secure. But of course, if we're going to be able to do that, we're going to be able to do it with a guest. And that means we have Rowan uh, with us this week. So say hello, Rowan. Hello. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I am I am Rowan Kaiser. I've written a bunch of things. I also host Total Massacre, which Kev is oft, often on. Yay. <laughs> Kev, Kev does a staunch and diligent duty plugging uh, Total Massacre at the end of this podcast in every episode. You should be very, very proud of. Thank you, Kev. You're you're truly a member of the crew. Thank you. Uh, what 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 did she say to you? You're, you're by my side throughout all of history. <laughs> yes, uh, uh, that's long and the short of it, absolutely. Excellent. Well, um, be be before we wander too far off the beaten track and, and get into the weeds, let's uh, let's start as we always do, which is with our guest. Uh, we always like to ask our guests what their history with Star Trek is. So, uh, Rowan, what is your history with Star Trek? How did you come to the show and, and sort of what is it to you? You wanted short, right? Well, <laughs> ish. <laughs> I am, I'm the number one Star Trek hater on the internet. Super hater? Should I go with that, Kev? I mean, I, I think there are people who truly yeah, can't so, find anything to like about Star Trek, which is not the case. As the fact no, that, I'm not. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. To go with Star Trek specifically, uh, I think I first encountered it. I don't remember if this was exactly like if I'd seen any episodes randomly before then, and I certainly knew it existed, but... I remember when Star Trek The Next Generation was ending, my dad was like, we have to watch this episode. It's the end of an era. And like, my parents had never watched a Star Trek episode that I had seen before. But we watched uh, All Good Things. And mm -hmm. it was quite good. And I, I went through various other Star Trek episodes at other times through, through my teenage years and just did not really get into it. Um, it's only well after that I actually started like sitting down and focusing and paying attention and watching the great ones. And most of what I watched was Next Generation and some D Space Nine. This is this is some of my first direct uh, direct interaction with the original series. Um, but yeah, I've seen most of most of TNG as an adult, uh, a good chunk of Deep Space Nine, uh, and. I think all the next generation movies um, for whatever that's worth, which isn't much. And uh, yeah, I think that's, that's mostly, mostly my direct interaction with the media of Star Trek uh, to, to, to go a little further as to why I call myself a hater um, because I didn't really have Star Trek as uh, you know, like a guiding force in how I came to television or how I came to science fiction or whatever. It's 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 like not part of my general overall viewpoint. And so I tend to be significantly more critical than people who like automatically see Star Trek attached to anything and are like, I want to watch this. Um, as a teenager, the show that I ended up 
catching up with was Babylon 5. I don't know why I watched an episode or I saw a commercial for it once, watched an episode and was totally hooked. And there was definitely some friendly and less than friendly rivalry between Star Trek and Babylon 5 fans back in the 90s, which I engaged in, though not really like fully, you know, guns out. I've watched both of these things and here's why. 50 here's 50 reasons why uh babylon 5 is better than star trek or vice versa uh it was more just that like there was always an alternative i read science fiction books i watched science fiction movies i watched other science fiction tv shows and i just have never like felt that star trek is or should be at the center of all of that culture uh, so this is this is where my hater uh, haterism comes from is that like when people are like oh there always should be a star trek the world needs star trek it's so important i'm like no it's fine we can deal without it um i also am often upset by people putting star trek at the center of especially like hollywood science fiction uh which leads to like just you know there's 7,000 episodes of Star Trek, and you're going to watch them all, Kev. Enjoy. Um, there's 7,000 episodes of Star Trek, and people are like, oh no, we need more. It needs to be the franchise. It needs to be everywhere. There needs to be constant Star Trek. And at least in the last few years, this has calmed down because people have started getting that, and uh, they've realized that maybe that's not what they want. Uh, but, like, yeah, they're just the ubiquity of Star Trek has always bothered me in that respect. As a television show, like, as a piece of media, I like and respect a lot of it um the episode that we watched spoiler alert i quite liked and respected uh some of some of the next generation episodes i watched are some of the most important and best television episodes i've ever seen there were also a lot of very bad ones uh but yeah i i treat it as a tv show i don't treat it as like this moral center um so yeah that's that's probably the shortest version i could go into a lot more but i I think that's just great context because I'm not terribly younger than you, but young enough where it's like I'm getting into fandoms um, a few years later when Doctor Who and Star Trek are not living vibrant things. I'd say, oh, I said Doctor Who a little too early. When Star Trek is not this living and vibrant thing, but it's kind of the the old texts, the ancient history in the yeah. same way like Doctor Who was. But then I start becoming a fan of genre things and like things for ostensible adults <laughs> when uh, both of those are being rebooted uh, with the uh, Russell T. Davies era and the Abrams movies. And that's how, that was my hook into sort of both of those. I just think it's a sort of an interesting parallel um, to be specific about Trek. So, yeah, it's I have never felt the pressure from my peers of that, like, oh, Star Trek must be ubiquitous. Star Trek must always exist. Star Trek is this moral high ground until it was, it fully came back with like Discovery and Strange New Worlds and Lower Decks and all of that. And now there's a new Star Trek fandom that I feel like is also a little more critical of, like in parts, I also don't engage with Star Trek fandom that much, I'll be honest. So I don't know what the Star Trek Star Trek fandom is like, but the genre and TV fandom, um, it it was an old... Uh, yeah, it, there's less of that sacro- sacrosanct, I think, air around it with the yeah. people I'm interacting with about Star Trek with, which is why I find it interesting to sum it all up, Rowan. I think we have very similar attitudes towards the shows, but I don't think of myself as a hater. 
I mean, I also talk shit because it's funny because it is the yep. sacred cow, and I, uh, you know, I exaggerate some of my my opinions and distastes and and so on. I uh, I used to do that a lot more. I do that less now that I'm you know calmer, older, more on estrogen, these kinds of things. Um, Sacred cows are there to be slaughtered. There's there's nothing wrong with yeah. slaughtering sacred cows. And I say this as somebody who's, yeah. a, who's a Voyager fan. So, you know, trust me, I'm, yeah. I'm, in, <laughs> I'm in solid territory as far as this is concerned. But one of the great pleasures of being able to do this podcast and having guests on every week is that everybody brings a refreshing perspective. And it's really great to be able to have somebody on who doesn't, you know, treat it as this kind of like holy writ or this incredible sort of un, un, unimpeachable or untouchable text that must only ever be this one thing. So I'm extremely looking forward to this discussion. <laughs> but before we get to that discussion, as we always do, we like to have our summary. Well, it's, I mean, it's sitting at the edge of forever. So like it's summary feels a little bit redundant, but nevertheless, over to you, Kev. Would you uh, care to give us our usual summary? All right. We start with probably the weakest bit of the episode. Uh, McCoy accidentally injects himself with something, goes a little crazy and runs through a time portal. Uh, but that gets us to the good stuff, which is as Kirk and Spock travel after him, they wind up in the Great Depression in New York. Uh, as Spock starts cobbling the other things to sort of figure out uh, how they can set time right. Uh, oh, it's part I missed. When McCoy went back, the Enterprise disappeared. And that means he messed up something in the time stream. So Kirk and Spock are there before McCoy gets there. Uh, Spock is cobbling things together to figure out how things are right. While Kirk falls in love with Edith Keeler, a pacifist and activist in New York at the time. Uh, they have a quick week-long romance while Spock fixes the machine and learns that Edith Keeler was supposed to die. Uh, but she was saved from a car crash by trying to help out McCoy, who later arrives. And then because she survives... Uh, her pacifist movement gains ground, delays the U.S. entering the war, leading to uh, a victory for the Axis powers, and that causes a lot of bad things down the road for the history of the Earth and the history of the Federation. So in a resolution, uh, Kirk, Spock, and McCoy have to watch Edith get run over by a car, and I feel like I almost put that too comically there. It's it's a very stirring moment, and they get back to their time, however, with things fixed. And we cut out of the episode without our usual uh, laugh it up on the bridge with cute jokes moment. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, I mean, talking about foundational texts and, and sort of moments in sci-fi history that kind of live on beyond their series and beyond their uh, cultural context. I mean, this is the city on the edge of forever often re related as like the greatest episode of Star Trek there has ever been, one of the uh, greatest pieces of television uh, ever broadcast, never mind sci-fi, never mind Sean the Ghettos, but it's very, very, very highly regarded. So the big question that faces us, does it live up to that reputation, do we think? So, um, Rowan, uh, our, our, our hazer for this episode. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> what did you uh, What did you think of this episode? Uh, given your 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 stance as somebody who doesn't treat Star Trek with kind of the reverence that it is sometimes uh, sometimes uh, approached, how did you find it? Well, I did. I did want to try to watch more like normal episodes of Star Trek to get a feel of how this one was different, and I didn't get around to that because I have ADHD. Um, so so I have to compare this to like all of television and, and so on. And um, 
Yeah, I think that like you can see why this episode gets this hype because the idea of like, would you travel back in time to kill baby Hitler is obviously a good hook for all kinds of storytelling as a reason that it's been around. And now it's, would you go back in time and let baby Hitler die if baby Hitler was hot? And this is also, (laughs) this is also a good, a good way to go about this, this kind of moral dilemma. And I think the episode does well to give it this kind of simple mythic uh, uh, kind of aura that lets the episode just sort of stand as both human in terms of like, this is what Jim Kirk is deciding and what he's he's supposed to do and how Spock is reacting and how Bones is reacting and all these things. But it's also got this kind of, uh, this is how society has to, or this is uh this is a grand thing that like our gods go through this is uh, yeah it's it's got the mythic aura that a metaphorical piece of fiction needs to have and one of my main complaints about star trek is that it always tries to go for these metaphors as if doing a metaphor is inherently good and I think that that's kind of infected a lot of bad science fiction, including bad episodes of Star Trek. Whereas this episode has this metaphor as like this grand, um, grand take on the idea of what what would you do in morality in in a very simple morality play that f- makes it function a lot better than a lot of bad uh, metaphor episodes. So yeah, I think I think it has earned its reputation in this way. I wish I had some other, you know, 60 science fiction to compare it to, but uh, I, I did not actually do that much research. That's, that's, that's fair enough. Life, life is short and Star Trek is long. Um, nobody's going to, nobody's going to criticize you for that. Um, Kev, I mean, you've, we're almost at the end of the first season now and you've watched yes. a, a nice good chunk of Star Trek. You've basically watched a third of the original series now. So, same question to you, sir. Um, how do you find it, and do you think this one really deserves its reputation as at the top of the pile? I, yes, to a certain extent. I think yes, this is one <laughs> of the best episodes of Star Trek. This is. I mean, here's the thing: you say it has a reputation of being one of the best episodes of Star Trek, one of the best episodes of television, and yet of the 28 episodes I've seen, I would say this is the my second favorite episode of Star Trek I've seen so far. And that's not a dent. Balance of Terror is incredible. But yeah, this uh, this still has, I think, some jokes that don't land quite well. A really ropey opening, as I mentioned. And, you know, I can nitpick here and there. I don't want that to get in the way of the fact that this is a mindless episode of television. I absolutely loved it. Um, in recommendations, I'm going to, spoiler alert, be on theme for once and recommend something that was clearly influenced by this episode. But... Uh, among, I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of other things also influenced by this episode as well. It's seems to be setting a template here for a lot of time travel moral dilemmas from science fiction going forward. It's just, yeah. It, so yeah, I can nitpick it and say it's not maybe one of the best episodes of television ever. But if I think we broaden the scope to like a top 100 or 200, I could easily see it getting in there. It's, it is a great, great episode of television. Kev, how much television do you think is out there? I mean, like, you know 50, what? 60? 
I think one of the things about this episode in in particular is that um, it's it's such an icon of Star Trek, and Star Trek is such an icon of sci-fi that it kind of gets elevated elevated regardless of whether that's mm-hmm. actually something which is wholly justified. Like I I I think it's a great um, I think it's a great piece of television. I think it's a great piece of uh, Star Trek. I think we've seen at least a couple of episodes which are better. I think Battles of Terror is better. I think Devil in the Dark is better as well. Um, and that, you know, it, it, it's that hook. It's it's the butterfly effect, you know. The butterfly effect was, uh, you know, well, Sound of Thunder, I should say, it was 1952. So we're just a little bit over, we're in 15 years, uh, roughly, and uh, since the publication of the Sound of uh, Thunder by Ray Bradbury. And this is the episode that kind of popularizes that conceit. There's elements of uh, episodes of Twilight Zone that kind of uh, play with similar themes, but nothing quite manages to cement that concept. It's not mentioned as the butterfly effect that literally on screen, but that's what it is. Um, and I kind of find the I find the politics of this episode utterly fascinating um, mm-hmm. because it's really wrapped up in its, its kind of sci-fi conceit, and then it's wrapped up in its kind of big, kind of dramatic crux. But I love, the polit- well, when I say I love, I love discussing the politics of, of this episode and of Star Trek in general, because um, there's so much contradiction within the show. But I think purely as a, just as a, as a standalone episode of television, I, w- I watched this with my partner, and he'd never watched a single episode of uh, the original show before. Um, and his comment was, I, I, I can see why this is a great episode of television, but I found it a bit slow and clunky. And, you know, mm. that's not honestly the worst criticism that this episode could possibly have. It, it takes like 15 minutes to actually go back in time. Yeah, it takes is, a long time. And like the, the, the initial premise just spends a lot of time talking about it like this is Bones' episode or they have to, they have to rescue Bones. And then that's, that just sort of takes care of itself. Uh, so yeah, there there is there is a certain slowness, and that's that kind of mythic simplicity of this is three then four people, and they're they're all kind of figuring out their roles to play, uh, does lead to you know it's sort of like a stage play, and that can feel a little clunky, um, but it's still effective. It's just you know you have to kind of reset your brain that they're not going to go to commercial break with people pointing guns at each other every time. I mean, I do think, though, when it does sort of get going, it does pick some good points to cut to commercial break. Uh, I guess it does kind of repeat the bit a couple times of Spock saying, I think she has to die, and Kirk looking off forlorn into the middle distance. But that is really good. It's a really good moral dilemma, and it's brilliantly acted by Shatner and Nimoy. And I think... Like this episode deserves a lot of credit for not pulling its punches at the end. Um, so yeah, I just think there is a bit of brain training to happen. I think I have benefited from watching not just twenty plus episodes of Star Trek before this one, but also having some grounding in the Twilight Zone and other odd bits and ends of old TV episodes here and there to sort of like get used to the pace of a '60s television show. But I think once you're keyed into that. Um, it is like remarkable for its time. Uh, I, I feel like first time is also backhanded. It's it's 
your question at the beginning, JJ, I think really set us off into a different path than I was expecting. Because <laughs> no, this is not one of the greatest episodes of TV of all time, uh, or it is depending on if you have a long enough list. But at the same time, it is an incredible episode of television. I just think all its problems are the same ones that we talk a lot about Star Trek running into, where yes, newer TV isn't inherently better, but yes, also there's been a collective learning of how to write television that has improved things over time in some areas. And I think that is sort of the only thing to really demerit this episode for is that it is very much a 60s episode of television paced and written and with some awkward jokes like one and not like this brace and work of science fiction that feels as modern today as it did then. Oh, no, I think that's perfectly fair. And I don't think there's anything wrong with acknowledging, you know, it's a product of its time. Of course it is. That slightly extended running time. It's not 45 minutes. Uh, it's just that little bit longer. Sometimes... Mm-hmm. Yeah, you feel it. And funnily enough, this is one of the episodes I think you do. Um, But at least if nothing else, it gives us, you know, that that middle sort of between maybe about a third and a half of the episode where it's just sort of um, uh, Spock and Kirk messing about for no readily apparent reason kind of sags a wee bit. But it's it kind of the episode gets away with it. Um, And the fact that it builds to a proper tragedy and, you know, capital T tragedy as well really does... um, you know, forgive all the sins. And, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, when you're doing a podcast like this and you're coming across, you know, an old series like Star Trek, you sometimes find yourself saying things that you would never in a million years have dreamed, you know, that those words would, would leave your lips. And and I think this is a perfect example of it because, you know, Joan Collins is really good in this episode. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, I... I think this is the first thing I've seen her. No, okay, I'm looking at her. I did find one thing I've seen her in: The Road to Hong Kong. <laughs> but <laughs> okay, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yes, I I haven't seen her in much else. Just scrolling through the filmography, but definitely, I mean, I guess that's just kind of who she is—a very of the moment actor for several decades, and I mean, still acting. It's just it's more by coincidence than anything, really. Um, but yeah, she is incredible in this and really good. I of course knew the name, but now that I've seen her at her full power, she is giving such performance in this episode. Sorry. I was looking to see if I recognized her. I don't know if you were waiting for me to say. Oh, that's all right. Oh, yeah. I, it, it, for, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm very old. So for me, you know, I know her from, um, uh, well, I would pronounce it dynasty. I guess uh, you would pronounce it dynasty uh, in the 80s. And that's, you know, that's her, that's her big thing. Right. Um, and, you know, she's a campy, vampy, you know, uh, you know, bitch queen. And, and, you know, that's fine. That's all right. But, you know, she did, and she also did some terrible, terrible B movies in the 70s, at least one of which was with William Shatner. Um, so it's kind of weird to know her from that context and then be able to go back and see, well, actually she's really good in this. Like she's amazing chemistry with William Shatner. And it's one of the things that makes this week long love affair, you know, really land is that they just, they spark off each other. There's, there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's real on-screen chemistry. If it had been someone that was just, you know, the usual, you know, girl in every court that Captain Kirk always has, it just wouldn't work. But the fact that there is this real kind of chemistry between them helps to land, you know, what is in essence a, a very speedy declaration of, of love on behalf of Captain Kirk. Yeah, I think the scene where she like 
explains her whole deal at the start as one of those things that's clunky, but it's clunky in a way that's necessary to make it work. Mm -hmm. The idea that she's she's actually dreaming of the stars in the 1930s, that she she knows that nuclear nuclear power can get you into a spaceship and go have you explore the the whole galaxy. That's that's the future of humanity, not not wars, not depressions, and so on. That starry eyed thing. It's a very clunky moment in speech. Uh, it seems all too convenient, like just as a part of television, right? It's super convenient that they managed to encounter the one woman who actually is thinking of doing Star Trek in the 60s, uh, you know. But that sets her up as being the dreamer on the level of Kirk as being the dream, which again adds to that mythic aura that once they actually sort of become people and interacting with each other and hormones taking their their course like yeah you can see why this actually ends up working um so you know clunkiness has its has its merits when you when you only have 50 odd minutes and you need to actually explain why these two people are going to uh going to run into each other and it could destroy the world yeah, and they just do such a better job with this character than any other Kirk girlfriend of the week. And that's, I think we've been very critical of that in this podcast. That's usually the weakest part of any episode is usually whatever woman William Shatner is trying to woo. Oh, yes. Um, but this is the one where it has to hinge on that. And I think that extra focus is what gets them to sharpen it up. Uh, I think also the fact that it's not just, I mean, We'll definitely get more into this, but it's not just a, the sci-fi great Harlan Ellison running this episode, but a rewrites from Gene L. Kuhn and DC Fontana, who are at this point are pretty well ensconced as like the two people who know these characters the best and can really get to the heart of these things quickly. That yeah, it's it's not feeling like a real television show. Like we had to suffer through a bunch of bad Kirk romance stories to get to one where now we know the character so well, we can take these shorthands and shortcuts and we know when William Shatner gives the love eyes, like it, it's almost more effective because of the repetition. I think the part that like actually felt the most modern was after that speech that I was talking about where uh, the guy starts starting to is talking about how he is going to wishes that she would do something that uh, Kirk just doesn't let him finish that sentence. And that's like the part where I like, I am laughing at the part that they want me to laugh at here. This yeah. is, this is this is the most I don't I don't want to say modern is that it. it's like progressed in a certain way because you know in many ways television has regressed over time, uh, but mm-hmm. it's the part that felt like it was most sort of in tune with comic sensibilities and going to be in tune with comic sensibilities and you know it makes Kirk look really good, which uh, is something that I gather is not always the case. That would be a fair assessment. Yeah, it, it's also um, when I say adult, I mean grown up, not X-rated. But you know, it's 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 like a grown-up moment. It's not corny jokes about mechanical rice pickers and and Spock's ears. It, it feels like, just, and it's such a tiny little beat. And I love it when Star Trek does that. It doesn't like overemphasize those little moments. It just takes them, gives them their space, and then you move on. Um, I like even if that speech that uh, that uh, Edith gives at that point is kind of corny. Like she's running a mission, 
and like you would expect especially like the 1930s kind of depression era like you know if they weren't if if there wasn't somebody proselytizing about the journey to the stars you would have somebody you know reading a passage from the bible or you know giving some kind of homily or sermon to you know the down and outs that they were trying to support something which would help give them this sort of sense of moral uplift so even although it is a little bit of a clunky exposition and it's it's kind of working to kind of patch over that kind of thing where, oh, well, why would Kirk be interested in this moment? Ha-ha. It kind of gets away with it because the context is right, the, the society part of it is right. And again, you know, when she's giving that speech, like John Collins is very, very watchable. It's a, it's a slightly contrived speech, but she's able to give it a slightly starry-eyed kind of like, oh, but but this is this is the hope for the future. This is what we want. And she, she delivers it really well. The great thing about it, and I mean the writing here, the great thing about it is that she's wrong. And I love that. That is such a powerful moment in Star Trek because it plays against absolutely everything that we come to expect as a Star Trek cliche. And Rowan, I, I specifically want to ask you something about this because you're coming to it as somebody with a very kind of critical agenda when it comes to Star Trek because we're used to this idea of utopianism, the idea of Star Trek being this like moral center of like sci-fi universe and you know exactly what you're talking about before we started discussing the episode. So this episode cuts directly against that. It's not pacifist. It's not utopian. Somebody who is who would normally be like an absolute archetype of everything that Star Trek believes in must die. Do you find that an effective inversion of what you would expect from Star Trek? Well, so first of all, to talk about why I wanted to do this episode, and I guess I was lucky that someone had pulled out, um, you know, I wanted to do this episode because it was the famous Harlan Ellison pinned one. And Ellison is both a famous figure in science fiction in his own right, and was a creative consultant on Babylon 5. Exactly how much that meant uh, in terms of like his input over the story is something that people debate. There are some people who try to say that it's all him and JMS just put the words onto the page or whatever. But mm-hmm. uh, I I think that's extremely an exaggeration. But what it is, what I wanted to like see that um, he might bring here was a kind of maturity to the utopianism, right? Uh, It's easy to say, yeah, we'll go to the stars and we'll fix all of everything. Uh, People will, you know, technology will improve magically to the point where we don't need to worry about poverty anymore. Uh, All these things that, uh, like, one of my complaints about Star Trek is that it doesn't do the work. It just says, yeah, somebody had an invention and everything's good now. Uh, it does occasionally do the work. There's some stuff in depth. There are various episodes where little things happen that indicate this as it goes on. But I don't think that Star Trek overall, uh, especially the next generation, which is, I think, the sort of ideal utopian Star Trek that a lot of people tend to cite, uh, is just about saying that things are good now because it's the future. Um, This episode wants to talk about what it means to put in the work. This episode wants to subvert it, but it tries to give Edith all the respect that it possibly can before it does that. And I think it, it ends a little quickly and doesn't fully get into this. And I'm going back and forth as to whether that's a strength or a weakness, but we can get into that when we talk about the actual ending scene. But in terms of like how Kirk and Spock actually talk about her, 
um, they're clearly reverent. They clearly think she's amazing. They clearly think that she is on the right track. It's just this one particular moment in history has this particularly negative uh, effect to it. So it doesn't come across as something that is like simply anti-pacifist. It doesn't come across as something that's anti-dreamer. It comes across as like, in this one particular moment, things might slightly go wrong. And also, I think the way that the things go wrong is really interesting. Because, like, probably the Nazis would have lost the war without the Americans actually providing troops. Uh, economic support uh, was pretty important, exactly like how much that's going to happen, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but the Red Army was going to march on Moscow. Like the, the Nazis had pretty much done the best that they possibly could in the first couple of years. And Russia was just too big and too powerful. And they had overstretched and all these, all these other things uh, made the Nazis losing the war pretty much inevitable. But the idea that Spock says that it was just like, just like, a bit of extra time that the U.S. wasn't providing economic support or wasn't providing military support that allows the Nazis to get the A-bomb. This is contrived to create the story, yes, but it's one that tends to, like, it's not this, like, very, I don't know, I don't want to say pro-Nazi, but it's not this kind of, like, the Nazis were this invincible war machine and only the Americans could possibly stop them that you see a lot. It's this... uh it's this like one little quirk might allow them just enough time to get a really big bomb that we know they were probably working on exactly how close they were to getting there. Who knows? But in terms of, you know, it being just plausible enough to fit into the mythology without being disrespectful to the Soviet war effort, which actually won the war without uh, making it seem like the pacifism is inherently the problem. It's just, you know, this one particular moment in human history is so important and so uh, carefully balanced that, yeah, something might have happened just with one pacifist American. Um, and I think that ends up setting it up as not this kind of liberalism versus conservatism or fascism or violence versus pacifism or whatever. It keeps it keeps the kind of moral center of this episode on just something could go horribly wrong at any point when you're at this weird inflection point in history. Um, and I could go on and talk further about the politics of Star Trek, but I think fo keeping focus on the, the very narrow aspect of the episode, I think it does extremely well at not being terrible, despite a quick summary making it seem like it could perhaps be terrible. I don't know, for some reason, my first thought is that same sort of oversimplification of World War II is also endorsed by Christopher Nolan. Uh, Oppenheimer's in theaters very soon. <laughs> um, it is like, yeah, it's just that is the myth, the almost building up the U.S. myth that is, I guess, just we just have to buy into it for this episode's sake. But, uh, I mean, what is TV if not buying into weird uh, constraints and ideas so you can tell a good story? Well, I think that's one of the things that's really fascinating about this episode is that we're in 1967 now. And, you know, 
the idea of standing up to Hitler or standing up to like the fascist advance, the Nazi advance, isn't an abstract concept. It's not something that is your know, way, you know, uh, you know, punch a Nazi. It, it, you know, these people served. These people were in the military. They had experience, you know, of, of actually standing up to the Nazis. Like the idea that this is something which has a like a moral weight behind it isn't abstract philosophy. It's a lived piece of experience, and because it's relatively close to the end of the Second World War, just sort of twenty odd years on, it means that we haven't had that that mythologizing happen in quite the way like Kev, you you mentioned like Oppenheimer. That's a great example of the way that we've mythologized. Oh this is the moment that changed the war. But actually, Rowan is right. You know, it, it was the Soviet advance. There was lots of other things that were happening apart from uh, what was happening in America and to a certain extent what was happening in, in, in Britain and, and on the continent. There are lots of different fronts in this war and there aren't really any, like, one point where you could say, all right, this, this is the key moment. And I kind of love the fact that this episode isn't a let's kill Hitler. It's not, what if we massacred uh, what if we killed baby Hitler? What if we? What if there was this like one butterfly? Well, it is a butterfly moment, but it's not one that turns on like the great man theory of history, and that's what I love. I despise the great man theory of history. Of course, I do. I'm a historian, um, but I love the fact that it's actually something else. Again, again like you mentioned, Rowan, it, it's this. It's a small thing. It was a, a small delay. That was all it took, and then the balance of power shifted and you know that happened time and time again during world war ii where just little things made such a big difference to the way that the result turned out and it isn't all about oh well you know like the americans swept into the rescue or we developed the a-bomb or you know britain's like incredible sort of mythology of like one island stands alone and like all those things are incredibly important and i don't want to demean or diminish them any in any way but there's so much more going on. That's history is, I hate to use the word tapestry, but, you know, and, and, and I love the fact that this episode focuses on something which isn't, what if we killed Churchill? Or what if FDR was taken out? Or what if it was Hitler? Blah, 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 whatever. It's not. It's just this one moment where somebody tried to do the right thing. And it is absolutely asserted as the right thing within the episode, but at exactly the wrong moment. And I find that, that interplay absolutely fascinating again because this is this is something which is a live experience for the people that are making this show it's not something which has been built up with decades and now well over half a century of kind of mythologization behind it this i mean this episode wouldn't work unless edith was a morally good person i mean we can take moral absolutes we just have to sort of buy into again as part of the episode but she is a fully morally good doing the right thing at all times like in her point of view it is what we would what most of normal society would deem as correct and yet she has to be punished for it because that is just the flow of history i that i think is the cynicism that harlan ellison is bringing and the cynicism that the show is kind of missing at times as you say rowan so it is just like it is just such a great kick in this episode that really pushes it over the edge that it's that just makes the tragedy episode so much more keenly felt she's not just like a normal human being or if it was a great person like fdr like it'd be too abstract we would be out of it we would not 
have the same emotional relation as we would to just an average person who is genuinely trying to do the right thing. And she is the one who has to die. And Kirk makes an active choice in this final draft that makes it to screen that she has to, that he can't save her. And I mean, he has to be pulled back by McCoy first, but there definitely is the moment where Shatner could have broken away and gotten to her and he doesn't. And that is just so like, that is the darkest moment we've seen from him. I think it's like one of the darker moments I've seen from a character in a TV series that has regular characters, <laughs> like especially one as optimistic and uh, utopian as Star Trek, uh, to have a character not do the Doctor Who thing of there has to be a third solution that I'll come up with because I'm so clever, which occasionally does work and is very satisfying. But man, just having to let the scenario play out one or the other and having definitive choice one way and it's a way that makes your main character look like an asshole on the surface even if it's for the greater good that is just i'll just say it's very brave yeah so this is what i'm talking about with the final scene where i keep going back and forth because it all happens very quickly um you know kirk and kirk and spock see see bones and they run over and they're like oh hey it's you and then edith crosses the street and kirk has to make his decision and it just happens like he says okay i'm making this decision right now uh there's a moment earlier where she starts falling down the stairs and like it's clear that he has the chance to save her or not and he makes this kind of gut instinct attempt to save her and the the show just like focuses on this it it lingers on it it obsesses mm-hmm. over it in a, in a way it implies that you know kirk's gut reaction is not to do this this correct thing but the way that she dies here is not like he's seeing it and he's slowly making this choice it's that like time has ticked down they know that they have a week to accomplish what they want to make that moment is here they don't have the ability to change that moment they don't have the ability to be like here's our super secret plan to try to save everything Mm -hmm. uh it's just inevitably moving and quickly moving towards this conclusion where kirk has to make a choice and he has to stop bones from helping her and that's the that's a choice and that's it uh and because of that speed like it makes the whole thing feel like it's just that he has like processed how important this is and has to make this one choice uh and he's done that mostly like off screen uh because like it was you know five minutes before that he had saved her falling down the stairs on gut instinct and that part i think makes the whole makes the whole process really fascinating because i feel like you know a more modern tv show would have spent 10 minutes on this one moment building to it it would have like had this slow motion it would have had you you would have seen the moment in his eyes for a long time as he's like trying to make this one decision and here it just sort of happens there is not like there is not a lingering on it and that does make the whole thing feel again both character based and mythological just like you that's the that's the combination that we've sort of been talking about um 
where the specificity of who Edith is and how she behaves and what what the actual thing that's going to happen is combined with this would you like let one person die in order to save save the universe you know Kirk's got his trolley problem here uh so the kind of mythic and character base comes comes to a head here and like I do feel like they could have spent more time with it, but I also respect that they didn't. I don't know. This might be what part of why the episode uh, has such a high reputation is that uh, that's the sort of thing that, that can linger in your head as a, as a conversation to have. And maybe in a week it'll, it'll feel even bigger than it did. Yeah. My mind is on like what other modern sci-fi shows would do the same story and come to the same conclusion. Uh, I'm, I'm taking a broad brush with modern here, but like even like Farscape or like Rick and Morty, which are shows I could see doing the same thing where like the Edith character would die in the end. They would still, like you said, Rowan, they would linger on it more. They would set it up more. They would soften the blow more. That's what all that would do would be to just like really like if the characters agonized over it, if they really like, if John Crichton made a whole song and dance over like, oh, here's how I could possibly save her and then eventually had to let her go, it would be a more emotional moment. This is just brutal with its swiftness. And that yeah. is what really, I think, gets to what you're saying, where like that's why it lingers, that's why it sticks, is because Kirk has to make a call in that moment and he makes the much more cynical call. And that is just hard to watch for a character we've grown to like, whether it's over a half hour in your case or... 20 plus episodes in mine uh yeah it's i i don't see many other shows doing the call like that even some of the darker ones so the modern way to do it would be that the heroes try to fight the idea of destiny and then they realize that destiny has to win right right um like i feel like supernatural probably did this like eight eight different times sometimes across the course of an episode sometimes across the course of a season and it's like always about oh no we don't believe in destiny we have to fight this and then they realize oh shit destiny has to win this otherwise everything will be much worse um and that's not the call that's made here the the decision is i i actually have this power I'm not, you know, being swept up in forces beyond my control and I have to do the right thing mm-hmm. for the greater good over my own personal feelings. Um, the speed at which it happens is not just in terms of the actual moment where Kirk has to stop McCoy from saving her. It's just like he stops her, Spock gets the he knows doctor line, then they're back in the planet, then your credits are rolling. That's it. Yeah. There is no time within the episode to process it. And again, I feel that makes it um, both very modern, but also very different from the way a modern show would handle that. Normally, you would have like that maybe happening at just before the epilogue, maybe about the 40-minute mark. And then you would have a few minutes afterwards where the lead character has the opportunity to go, oh, well... You know, you know, I understand I did it for the right reasons, but oh, my heart has been ripped out. Like Kirk just gets that one line, like, let's get the hell out of here. And mm-hmm. that's it. It's done. It, it, like that, the, the, the whole crux of this episode is basically about three and a half minutes flat. Um, and there's no 
sense in which the episode tries to minimize the brutality of that moment. And I think that's one another reason that it is just so effective. If we had any time to stop, work through what Kirk has had to go through, work through what McCoy has just witnessed, or work through Spock's understanding of what his friend has just done, it would, I think, in some ways undermine that. But it's just bang, 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 out. That's it. That's all you're getting. And the only, and this is not at all the fault of City and the Age of Forever, the only thing a modern show would probably do different, and this is particularly relevant for something like Deep Space Nine, is you would have, it, it would carry on. There would be some consequence to it in further episodes. I'm sorry to spoil this for you, Kev. There's really not going to be. It's it's not that kind of show. But it's the 1960s. It's serialized television. You know, we don't have long-form storytelling in that in that kind of sense. But that's not the fault of this episode. And it's definitely not the fault of either uh, Harlan Ellison or, or, or any of the rewrites. Like, that brutal ending, that's a gut punch. And that's exactly why it works. So one of the one of the other things that issues that I have sort of had with Star Trek is its reliance on kind of alt history or alternate dimensions, uh, time travel, these kinds of things. And I think this episode is I've I've softened a bit on this as I have discovered more better time travel things uh, and not watched a bunch of bad Star Trek episodes recently. So, uh, but this episode I think make some interesting choices in like the hows and whys of the time travel um the guardian the the arch that sends them back in time doesn't have a point uh it's it it like sort of talks at the beginning like it has a point and at the end of the episode it could say something like now you've learned you know what true maturity is no it's it's just a thing it's just happened to put this thing there. Uh, there's also this, this idea that like Kirk and Spock are going to show up where Bones is going to show up because time will like channel them into the right way. Just convenient for storytelling. But again, it's also just this like this happens to be this one time and place where a thing might have happened that changed a bunch of things. And like normally to go back to what JG was saying, like normally, um, normally a time travel episode would have someone do like someone do something new to an existing historical character or event. Uh, like you would go and tell Roosevelt, Hey, maybe you shouldn't invade this one place earlier or later or whatever. And Roosevelt would be like, okay, I'll do that. Uh, so you have an existing thing that is now changed. Whereas this is a new thing. Edith is, Edith, Edith's pacifist movement is an entirely new event. And this is a different aspect of a time travel story, which is usually about like, if you fiddle with one thing to try to make it a thing you know about better, uh, that will cause problems. In this case, it's a new thing. And that, I think, makes the time travel metaphor more interesting, uh, less predictable, uh, at the very least. But also I'm sort of like rolling it around in my head being like, does does the idea that something novel was prevented actually like change the nature of what time travel is used for as a storytelling device in a way that makes it more effective? I definitely think 
the time travel here is very necessary. And I don't know, I guess novel or effective, it almost kind of goes out the window when you're talking about the 1960s. Uh, because, I mean, yes, science fiction, H.G. Wells existed before this episode. But I do feel like this is coding a lot of tropes, and if not coding, at least popularizing a lot of them that weren't in the public consciousness at the time, which is something we run into a lot with Star Trek, where it's like, this sounds so unoriginal, but oh, wait, it was the thing that everyone's copying. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely think with later Star Trek, especially when you get into, like, especially Discovery, but also the reboot movies and even the 90s stuff, like the time travel stuff, it makes sense that that would be wearing on uh, ways, wearing on you in ways. But I don't know. It's, it, I think it's almost, it's hard to get into that mindset, but you almost have to keep it in mind where it's like, yeah, this is such an interesting take on time travel for this time period um, in a ways that not many other things besides maybe the Twilight Zone was doing. I mean, I think it's an interesting take on time travel in general. Like, True. It's usually you are altering a known event as opposed to allowing or disallowing a new event from happening. Uh, and that, that sort of changes the mode because like, a TV show that has time travel or, you know, any story that has time travel will have rules. Like, are you creating a new timeline by changing things? Are you taking one timeline and altering that? Or are you creating a time loop? And this episode just sidesteps all that, that doesn't have these questions uh, answered in any way whatsoever. You could argue that there is sort of a time loop where once once McCoy goes through the portal, Kirk and Spock have to follow. Time is the river. To, these things will turn into the loop. But this episode is not interested in saying that. It's not interested in saying that there was an alternate. It's not interested in saying those things. It's just interested in using the time travel to force this moral choice. And yeah, that's fairly rare, even for like these formative texts. Uh, you know, it's a... I, to go back to my old arguments about time travel, it's sort of a chrono trigger where they're just using time travel because it'll make the story more interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in chrono trigger, it's so that you can have knights fighting against dinosaurs, and that's cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this episode, it's so that you can force Jim Kirk to make a moral choice, and that's cool. Uh, and that's like one of my favorite time travels forms is here's the thing that we're doing just because it seems like it'll it'll be neat um and this episode ends up kind of doing that sort of backwards but it gets there i think that's kind of why it benefits from being written in the 1960s because in a pre like back to the future world like you write this up to today people expect you to explain the time travel which is i think so annoying but it's expected of you and you have to at least play lip service to the fact that this is how time travel works there's no preconception there. It just, they go back in time and things just happen as they happen as dictated by the story and not by uh, people demanding an explanation so they can feel satisfied with that. Well, and I think you had it right, Kev, when you mentioned H.G. Wells, because they said that's exactly the model that the time machine works on. Like The time machine itself is irrelevant. It's just a mechanism to explore H.G. Wells's concept of socialism and sort of class warfare. And that's what's great about the time machine. You don't need to know that it's got the lithium crystals and it can split the space-time continuum into a hundred. Like that, that, that's not necessary. There's a thing, and it takes you to this place, and then we get on with the story. And it is incredibly refreshing to have something be that simple. 
again when I was watching this episode uh, with my partner, uh, like one of the things that he said at the end was like, "Oh, but how did they get back to the planet?" So that's not the point. Like uh, there is a line earlier uh, that the Guardian has about you know, yeah, when you fix things, yeah, bring you back. But that that's not the point. That's that's uh, it. We don't need to have that sort of explanation, but to an audience who are conditioned to have this kind of sci-fi explanation or to have a bit of baffle gab and technobabble, which, you know, says, oh, well, you da, 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 da. but it doesn't matter because that's not ultimately what the story is about. And the way that this story is able to both address like the personal and the political. And, and one thing we haven't mentioned is that when we've been talking about the, the politics, but, but, you know, Vietnam is such a yeah. such a big thing at this point. It's 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 almost impossible to talk about an episode of Star Trek that engages with politics that doesn't mention Vietnam. But again, the idea of like pacifism, the idea of gung ho militarism, the idea of you know like standing up, that is such a live issue when this episode is going out. And I think it's kind of to the episode's credit that it doesn't try and draw a line between Edith uh Edith dot dot World War Two dot 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 uh America Vietnam. And you know that it's really important that it doesn't draw that line because that would really start to cause a lot of kind of political problems that Star Trek honestly at this point in its uh, history isn't best place to deal with. It can comment on something that happened 20 years ago when it's World War II, but it struggles. And oh my God, is Star Trek going to struggle when it comes to dealing with uh, uh, more contemporary issues like like Vietnam? Um, so it's, I also I also find it really fascinating that, that Edith is sort of predicating this idea of, of, of peace and pacifism. Of course, it's 67, it's the summer of love, it's all that stuff is at its absolute height, but it's also kind of, you know, right in the middle of, of, of Vietnam. Um, and yet there isn't that emphasis that is suggesting that maybe maybe that would be an applicable scenario. This is a, this is an episode which is dedicated wholly to looking and engaging in the past, but it's the past of the 1960s, not the past of the 23rd century. So I I just went to look something up and Rocky and Bullwinkle had been having uh, Peabody and Sherman doing their doing their time travel nonsense for like most of a decade at this point. Uh, so their time travel as some kind of convention uh, was was involved was in popular culture even in television. Uh, I don't know to what extent like people expected explanations of when that would have started, but uh, this episode, I don't think invented it for television. Uh, it did it well, uh, and it might have invented a certain form of it for television, which is, uh, I think, one of one of the big things about Star Trek is that, you know, it's the progenitor of so many like genre television episode formats. Uh, especially the next generation and the original series, uh, and yeah, so getting the getting a trolley problem time travel thing going on is not uncommon. Um, to to sort of step back to the politics and why this episode works and why I don't think it it has a simple political answer to it. Uh, well. I just remembered a completely different thing before I could, before I do that. Uh, 
I think Star Trek often works better when the characters are helpless. Um, when when they know that something has to be done and they would have the power to make things somewhat more convenient. Like a lot of my favorite Next Generation episodes are the ones where like they're trying to fiddle around the Prime Directive and they realize that like, yes, we could potentially help in this one situation, but it would actually make things worse. We could try to introduce these characters to classical liberalism way too early or in a, at a point in their development or whatever. Uh, all, the, all these things that like, the thing that the character wants to do and knows is right in the moment is not actually the thing that's right overall. Uh, and this episode does that really well. And, you know, those might be my episode, my preferred episodes of Star Trek because they're the ones that have the the kind of cynical. Okay, really, if you want to deal with a utopia, this is the action. These are the actual questions you have to deal with. Um, anyway, to go back to the politics specifically, and this all this all will tie together. Uh, I mostly promise. Um, so, one of my big issues with Star Trek is that its ubiquity has caused this kind of over-reliance on metaphorical storytelling, particularly a metaphorical storyline that's like, what if a person who was perfectly trained in classical liberalism encountered this event from the past or this method of argumentation or a god or like some sort of thing that's outside the bounds of conventional classical liberalism what if someone who lived in new york in the 1980s uh was in command of a starship and ran into uh you know x event happening and the ubiquity of star trek and the idea that this is the base form of how television should work or science fiction television should work has led to even the shows that are like the anti-star treks like a Babylon 5 or like a Battlestar Galactica, they're still Star Trek. They're still about what happens when classical liberalism encounters X weird thing. Um, and I feel like, you know, there's only so far that that metaphor can take you. Science fiction can do a lot of other things. It doesn't have to be just about what if people with our modern societal viewpoints encountered things that were well outside our societal viewpoints. Uh and I get disappointed in Star Trek as being the model for all science fiction because it doesn't go into those things a lot because it relies on this metaphor of, you know, what if a Democratic voter uh, ran into an alien who reproduced in a different way? I don't know. Um, what this episode does in a way that's kind of sets it outside of conventional Star Trek politics is that this is only a metaphor for making hard choices overall. This is not a metaphor about what is good for society beyond, yes, I think society should exist even if it hurts me. Uh, this is not a metaphor for, you know, America in Vietnam. This is not a metaphor for America in World War II. Uh, it's simply a metaphorical story that Kirk and Spock and eventually McCoy happen to be a part of involving difficult choices for the case of society. And like, I don't think this episode makes an argument that like 
liberal society, Western society, however you want to define this, needs to make hard choices like this in order to thrive. This is just a thing that happens and Kirk decides that he wants to serve the greater good instead of uh, serving his individual interests. And that's all. And I think that gives it an extra power to it. It makes it a sort of weird thing where like, does this even have to be an episode of science fiction? Not really. Uh, the science fiction helps frame Kirk's choice, but Kirk could have a choice like this in a lot of different forms, or a character could have a choice like that. But it manages to use the science fiction trappings just well enough to put the characters in a story that they get to make an interesting choice and that is sufficient to make a good episode of television that doesn't go into a wider this is capital M meaningful um, and yeah I think that's part of why this episode comes across as fairly refreshing within the context of Star Trek's utopianism without necessarily saying the utopianism is wrong or right or anything like that. And I think the fact that it is so a journey so personal to Kirk is what really right. benefits this episode. I'm thinking about like, you know, various Star Trek episodes that are like, what if we went to a planet where women were in mm. charge and men were slaves or whatever, or something like that. And it's like, here is a very blatant metaphor about, you know, sexism or and right. it's just kind of silly. Uh this episode is not that. Yes. It's that is just, and I think the big part of that is just how great the um, the story editors and showrunners uh, Pontana and Kuhn are at just knowing these characters and how well Shatner knows this character. That I think, I and mean, obviously Ellison's script already centers it on this moral choice from the get go. Uh, we don't have. To quote John Mulaney, we don't have time to unpack all of that, especially an hour into this podcast recording, about all of, like the rewriting and disputes and production stuff that happened here. But to sum it up, Harlan Ellison turned in a script, was asked to rewrite it. Um, a bunch of staff people, Gene Alcoon, DC Montana, Gene Roddenberry, rewrote it a lot. And there was a lot of conflict over who was winning awards for what and what rewrites changed what things people liked. But... All that said, I think you do Roland need Ellison all these... is not the world's easiest person to work with. Yeah. Is, is one aspect of this story, but Harlan Ellison is a very talented writer. and Well, Gene Roddenberry is not the easiest person in the world to work with, and he is not a talented writer. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess my point is, though, Harlan Ellison, yes, very talented writer. You do need these people who know these characters well in order for this story to work. Uh, just reading little bits of the production, there was like a cutscene from his script about how like Kirk was making a very acidic joke about leaving Spock to die at some point. There's just a lot in there that I think wouldn't hold up to the 28th episode of the series. And I think it is a lot of those Kirk and Spock moments that really center these characters and make them stronger so they're being written as these very experienced hands of Star Trek know how to write them that only increased the sort of inherent tragedy in this story. If Kirk was more of a jerk and, and he and Spock were getting along so much, if they didn't have their, um, at the very least, camaraderie friend moments, and or you can go a little deeper than that. I mean, this episode definitely leaves you room to. Um, <laughs> then, yeah, the, the choices they make at the end would not hit nearly as hard. Um, I, I do just want to talk about 
just so we can hit these points before we wrap up because we're already is already going to be a supersized episode. We got to talk about how great some of those character moments are. I love Kirk talking up to Spock that he can bluff his way of anything because it's such a simpler time. And then push comes a shove. He's got nothing in the tank. He cannot lie to save his life. <laughs> and Nimoy's reactions to all of that is just superb. Absolutely. We haven't really talked about Nimoy in this episode, but he is so good. I mean, you know, Spock is very much the secondary character in this. We've had, you know, quite a few episodes where, you know, Spock has been um, sound of focus. We've had Galileo 7. We've had Devil in the Dark. Um, you know, like, like Spock has been getting a lot of screen time, this side of Paradise, of course, as well. Um, but Spock is very much in the background here. And yet, and yet. He is such a great character, such a great presence through this. Uh, if you want to make something out of him and uh, Kirk sharing a room together, you know, I'm not going to stop you. Uh, but <laughs> it's just, uh, it, it's just like the natural rapport, the ease, and it's that again. It's one of those lines which could be um, so corny, um, but but when um, you know uh, Kirk and Spock are in the basement and and they turn to Edith and say, "Well, you know, what do you say?" Uh, where do you see us? And and uh, she looks at Spock and said, "You always by his side." And then a little bit later on, you have the um, captain. Even when he doesn't say it, he still does. And those are lovely character beats because they're not coming from Kirk or Spock, but they're helping to kind of reinforce just how close that relationship is. Again, feel free to speculate about how close that is in, in your own time. But it's just a great thing. And Nimoy is so good. And when he has to deliver, and, and the, the whole he knows Doctor thing, that's a great moment of television. But I actually prefer the the kind of lead into the, the ad break earlier on where he says, Edith Keeler must die. And then you get like the big zoom on Kirk. But it's the way that Nimoy delivers that line. It's just not perfect. And he is so good oh, yeah. at just being able to take that moment and just make it work. Shatner also deserves a shout out here. Like, as oh, I watched yeah. this episode as, you know, probably my first time, my first time that I remember watching an actual original series episode, like knowing that this is one of the best episodes of like, okay, you know, that means that most episodes are going to be worse than this. The thing that I still see here and is like, and I'm like, okay, this is how this show became such a thing uh, is largely in Shatner's performance. Like mm -hmm. there's, there's just an inherent uh, kind of draw to most everything he does here that, manages to maintain attention even when things are clunky it's something that comes up a lot on this podcast for exactly the reasons you just said which is that william shatner's performance is really good most of the time and especially good here it's for already a show where he has pretty much held court in nearly every episode this is still one of his best performances i mean he knows when to be loud when to be quiet and he's not loud that often which is like kind of a departure he knows how to of course as the cliches go, like really monologue a storm and emphasize everything, but it's a very subdued performance here relatively and all the more effective because of the tragedy it's building to. And again, having Namoy be able to play off that rather more understated performance that he's giving just helps to like underscore it. It gives it that nice line where you can see not only just how close these two characters are, 
but how much it kind of helps to push you know aspects of Kirk that we're not used to seeing to the fore and you know like from our perspective from a 21st century perspective we're used to this idea of like Spock and you know like all the lazy kind of cliches of, of William Shatner's acting and you know said many times at this podcast we are very pro William Shatner uh, as, as far as his performances go but this is exactly the episode to sort of mention it just one more time uh, because he is so good at being able to under underplay and that's not what his reputation is you know his reputation is either you know like he's doing the ladies man thing in this but it's not the cliche kind of William Shatner Captain Kirk ladies man thing he is charming he is charming. That's the whole point. He's not like hamming it up. He's not doing a big eye roll. He's not doing cheesy chat up lines or whatever. Um, I mean, if you want, again, if you want to have a very minor nitpick in this episode, I find the use of Goodnight Sweetheart on the, on the soundtrack a little overemphasized, but like, I get what it's going for. Again, it's the 60s. That's the production style at the time. Okay, I get it. But like, again, Shatner is so good at being able to just hold and he commands the screen and he's that it's a whole reason he's such a compelling actor within the show that will start to become uh less true particularly once we hit the third season but right here like he's kind of at the height of his powers he's a magnetic performer and and so everything hinges around that and the Moy's understated again as well uh performance just makes it so much more emphasized. This beautiful performance uh, from Nimoy. I absolutely love him in this. Less is asked of him, but DeForest Kelly also gets a really good scene in the middle. I feel like it's a very difficult scene for an actor to play. You're high on drugs and you're shouting at people. But when he <laughs> talks to the man in the alley, it is like a very wonderful scene about just... I don't know, like just futurism in general. In like, like, like Cortezine is definitely just acid, right? Like, like McCoy right. is definitely just tripping. Right. <laughs> but at the same time, um, yeah, he and you could also pretty easily take that scene out. But it's a lovely little scene. I like that scene a lot. And I think a lot of it is because of Kelly's performance. It's it's also just so unusual to see McCoy push to those kind of extremes. Mm -hmm. I find that the whole kind of assassins, murderers, <laughs> that kind of needs not my favorite moment of the show but when he's just when he's in the alley and he's doing all that thing it's like, you know i won't kill you and like that's it's just i don't want to say it's more realistic <laughs> that seems like a ludicrous thing to say at this point but it's just got a little bit more conviction maybe that's what it is when he's dealing with the tramp and all the rest of it uh yeah he's clearly you know tripping balls that's fine the tramp steals the phaser kills himself all that this it's the Again, you know, Spock talks so often during this episode of, like, random elements. And here we actually get to see a random element played out, not as, a again, an abstract philosophical concept or an abstract, you know, extrapolation of uh, time travel. But, like, here we get to see, like, the actual consequences of it. I guess that tramp dying didn't affect the space-time continuum. I guess he never went on to have kids or someone that was important or, like, okay, well, he's just vaporized himself in an alley. Ah, that's a shame. Uh, and, and we move our focus back to Edith. But it's just, it is, like I agree, Kev, it's, it's a lovely little scene and it just helps to um, give a little bit more dimension, I suppose, to, to like whatever it is that's going on with McCoy. And then like the moment he recovers, that scene when he's in the cot, 
uh, and and Edith is talking to him. Like he's got the southern charm suddenly comes flooding back in, and he also is able to have a like, he establishes a great rapport with John Collins, but it's a completely different sort of rapport from the one that William Shatner has with her. He's being charming. He's being an absolute delight. He's back to the McCoy that we all know and love. The forest is phenomenal in that scene. And it's incredibly nice. And then again, two minutes later, she's dead. It's such a, again, yeah. it just helps to reinforce the brutality of the end of it. But again, yeah, like McCoy is, and, and, and the forest gallery, just amazing. In this scene. And, it's all for this, like, for want of a nail style series of coincidences that lead her. I mean, I guess she, through the past, was always going to die. But because McCoy accidentally with the drugs, and because he ran through the time portal coincidentally, and because it went back, like, this causes all this tragedy of them meeting this woman that has to die and having to make this choice. That it, I don't know, just all of that happens just by accident. And, like, I could see, I mean, maybe in a different episode, worse or better, who can say uh, McCoy unpacking his guilt a little more about his role in all of this, but it's just kind of lovely like, that he's the one who like runs for her and Kirk has to hold him back. Like, that is he's also just less in the know about why it has to happen, but you get the sense that he didn't want this to happen, especially because he's kind of responsible, even not, even though she was going to die anyways, he's the one who created this mess in the first place and yet he has to see the consequences of his actions i think the actual creator of this mess is american car culture that's the true villain of this episode <laughs> how often um, that turns out to be the case yeah i did not expect that to be the case going into an episode of star trek but i i respect it well and i think with that we can probably um start to draw our discussions to a close um this has been fantastic what a great episode of television and what a great episode to be able to inspire our discussions but no discussion we have is ever complete without our, our ratings. So, uh, Roy, you're a guest. So, um, out of ten, what would you care to give this episode? I think I think I've talked myself up to a nine. I was I wasn't probably an eight, but rolling some of the things around in my mind as I as I've tried to form opinions here, uh, yeah, we'll go up to a nine. That sounds good. Lovely, Kev. I I think I am going to be a little more generous and go for the full ten. Um. <laughs> I mean, like I said, not my favorite Star Trek, but my second favorite. I, I do think this is a wonderful television, and even if I could nitpick it, uh, 10 doesn't mean perfect. 10 means top 10%, top 10 percentile in my mind, if it's a 10-point scale. So, yes, that is just where I'm sort of rubber stamping it up ooh. there with Bounce of Terror, for sure. Ooh, ooh. Well, if it's a 10-point scale, well, that's very much the question, isn't it? Uh, but with your point fives and your twenty point scale. Well, so now should I give it nine, a nine and a half, or a ten? That's the question. That's the question. I think, I think I'm going to go with uh, with Rowan's answer. I think I'm going to go with nine. Um, I do think this is an astonishing episode of television. I think it's a bit slow at the start. I think it struggles to find its feet a little bit. Once it does, I think it's unparalleled. But I think I would be uh, slightly disingenuous if I if I couldn't quite hold it to the same standard so brilliant great phenomenal but i think i'll give it a nine out of ten and leave our discussion of the city on the edge of forever there and move on to recommendations uh rowan once again you're our guest so uh, you can go first um is there something you would like to recommend to us this week 
so the th- the episode of Star Trek that I was actually most reminded of while watching this was not necessarily another time travel episode. And I think this speaks to sort of the, the strength of this episode as just like kind of a slice of life. But the one that I was thinking of was the Next Generation's Inner Light episode where Picard yeah. goes and lives in alternate life in... I don't remember exactly what it was, a different timeline or whatever, but... Uh, inside a probe. Yeah, inside a probe. <laughs> That's right. It's the like the de- death of a, an alien civilization, and he, he gets their memories. Um, and the reason for that is that it has this just kind of lived-in reality to it, Uh, where like Kurt could make the choice potentially to say, I don't want to save this. I want to live here. I want to be in this world. Yeah. That's never made explicit, but it's kind of a thing that's hanging over the episode. So yeah, that this idea that this is, this is a potential life that could be worth living in, in another way reminded me a lot of the inner light, which is not again, not a thing that I was necessarily expecting. And I'm not sure that's a thing that a lot of Star Trek people might, might say, because that episode has like a different reputation as like a a nice one where this one ends with brutality. So, yeah. I mean, the thing they have in common, both Hugo award winners as I was my little Googling revealed. So, yeah. Excellent. Fantastic. Well, um, Kev, you're a good decade away from the inner light if we carry going through mm. our Star Trek reviews at this pace, but but, but trust me, it, it, it'll be worth the wait. Uh, but in the meantime, what would you like to recommend? Uh, I'm also going to, for once in our run, uh, be on topic and recommend something related to the episode. I'm going to recommend what this episode immediately reminded me of, uh, something I think also recommended on our Talking Who podcast, but that is in the past, and this is a new Star Trek podcast. So I can feel free to re-recommend the books by Connie Willis, uh, specifically her Oxford oh, Time Travel book. You're so right. I so wanted to reference that when we were talking about it, and I couldn't think of it in mm-hmm. time. Sorry. Do yes. <laughs> um, to Say Nothing of the Dog and Blackout slash All Clear are the two, or two of the three, or three of the four, depending on you count it, Blackout and All Clear are a two-part novel. Um, have not read the Doomsday book yet. I did add it to my uh, library hold queue while I was watching this episode. Uh, but yes, her Oxford time travel books are about historians who travel back in time. And in each one, something goes wrong to strand them there. And uh, to say nothing to the dog is a, I will look up what era it takes place. in. I think mid 19th century is safe to say. Isn't it, isn't it about Waterloo? I don't think so. I think maybe it's contemporary with Waterloo, but to say nothing to the dog, which um oh okay wait. yes 1888 uh okay. the victorian era um is it's more of like a farce a sort of silly comedy right, right, with, like, right. love and falling like romantic entanglements and witticisms and things like that and that's very yeah, great yeah. uh black o- I think that, sorry there's an example in it of like how time travel works where they talk about like people who've gone and tried to change waterloo and mm-hmm. something ridiculous always happens so that waterloo ends up having the same result yes um, so that that's why i always remember that that yes that is a great bit from that no- i think it's from that novel um, yeah not one of the other ones but um that is how time travel works is you can't change history because history will always push you right back uh blackout all clear is a more 
like I said, epic two-part novel is set during the Blitz, featuring several characters that is much more dramatic, but very satisfying. And I think these same ideas of, like I said, you can't change the past. It has to flow forward. And setting that in sort of the genre of romantic entanglements and uh, like not guns and lasers and running around and shouting at each other, but much more, I guess, domestic drama might be the right term. I don't know, but it is just very lovely novels, just very great work. And so, um, yeah, I would highly recommend those novels by Connie Willis, uh, To Say Nothing to the Dog, Blackout, and All Clear. And I would also recommend them as well because I read them on the back of your recommendation and talking who to you, and they were fantastic. I thoroughly enjoyed them, so they were a great recommendation and a perfect parallel to uh, City and Ninja Forever. Um, unfortunately, I'm not going to do a recommendation which has even slightest to do with what we've been discussing today, but oh well, never mind. Um, I'm going to recommend the book Yeah, 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 uh, The Story of Modern Pop. Uh, by Bob Stanley. Um, it's a really lovely book. And as you might gather from the subheading, The Story of Modern Pop, it's the story of modern pop. It's just a great little uh, introduction to a whole uh, era of music spanning basically from the very first moment that the charts were introduced, sort of uh, early 50s, until basically the charts become relevant, sort of towards the end of the 90s. Uh, in terms of uh, physical media sales, I should add. Um, it's a really well-written book. It's got some curious quirks in it, uh, not least of which is that Billy Connolly appears to get mentioned more often than Dolly Parton, which is an interesting approach to take uh, when you're talking about pop music. But it's just a great book for anybody who has like a, a love of uh, music but doesn't necessarily feel the need to have it nailed down to uh, sort of deep levels of academia. The whole point of the book is it's about the joy of music and about the pleasure that it can bring. And and in that, it's so hard to write about music in a, in a way which actually sounds enthusiastic, but also not corny. Um, and one of Bob Stanley's great gifts in this book is is being able to do that. So, um, yeah, that's my recommendation for this week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And with that, I think we can probably move on to plugs. Um, so, uh, Ron, is there anything you would like to plug? Uh, I do a podcast called Total Massacre that Kev is on often, and Kev will be on when we record tomorrow, but it should be released uh by the time this episode gets released uh we're going to be doing uh alita battle angel and then we're going to be doing some other episodes that kev will probably be on yay uh yeah very excited for the alita episode a movie i had a blast watching in theaters and we'll hopefully have a blast talking about you i guess listeners will have known by now if you listen to both podcasts but yeah it's gonna be fun um and as for us, you can find us on Twitter at Talk Trek to You. I'm on Twitter at Kev Kozer, K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R. I don't need to po- uh, plug my other podcast that I participate in. Rowan just did that. Uh, but JG's other podcast he participates in is Beatles Stuffology, going through the Beatles track by track. You can find his writings at www.jgmcquarry.scott, J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E dot Scott. And please like, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on whatever podcatcher you use to help other people find it. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And Ron, thank you very much for joining us this week. Thanks for having me. It's been wonderful, and I hope we get to talk to you again. But now we can leave this episode, one of the great titans of Star Trek. And so, 
I mean, I hate to do the whole sublime to the ridiculous thing, but next week it's time to talk about Operation Annihilate. And, you know, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking. Thank you.